temple up here that we prayed and sent to a church plant, which is awesome. The flip side of that is they're not here anymore. And so that's how that works. When they go somewhere else, they're not here anymore, in case you hadn't put that together. The problem with that um, that occurs is that there are, there are holes in, in sort of where people are serving. And so we have classes, we have life groups where leaders have been serving, where people have been, um, you know, spending their time um, teaching. And so we, we need to let you guys know tonight some needs before we jump into our study. So I, I talked to Annie and Tiff about what, what needs they have in the children's area. And we need two toddler teachers for Sunday mornings. Two, two teachers of toddlers. We don't need toddler teachers. We need teachers of toddlers. Two teachers of toddlers for Sunday mornings. And we also need about six nursery workers and helpers for Sunday. And there's a difference between the teacher, nursery worker, and helper. And we need about four of those for Wednesday. And so y'all pray about that. If you're, if you're already serving in that area, great. Keep doing what you're doing. If you're not serving with the children in any area, that's where we're encouraging you. Hey, in order for, the thing we've always said is for adults to have a study on Wednesday nights, someone has to watch kids. And so um, they don't just watch kids, but they teach kids. And so we have to sort of share that load and rotate in and out from week to week. And then we record these studies each week. So if you're out, you can listen to it. And you don't really miss anything. So Two teachers for toddlers on Sundays, six nursery workers and helpers on Sundays, and four-ish, I don't know what that means, workers for Wednesdays. So they might be able to do a three, but four be better, I think is what they're saying there. The other thing is our media team. Um, We've got some holes in the media team. So we really particularly need help with uploads on Wednesdays in particular, isn't that right? And so that's, if you have any I mean, you don't have to be like a computer guru. He's, he's written a program where you just plug in the title and you don't have to do like FTP protocol, all that kind of stuff. Um, you just plug in what you need to plug in and it does it. But we need someone who can, has the time to do that. So if you feel called, which we hope you do, um, in any of those areas, uh, please let me know. Um, let the media guys know. Let Annie and Tiff know that you are willing to help and we'll get you plugged in. And if you're thinking, why? I can't do that. We don't put you in any place to serve that we don't train you in thoroughly before we let you go. We have a very vested interest in things going well. And so we don't want it to be all crazy like, you know, you go and crash the website or something like that as you're uploading files. So uh, we'll train you thoroughly and, uh, and, and availability is the main thing. So you don't have to be a guru in any of those areas. You have to be willing and you have to be able to um, take some direction on how we do it. So those are some needs that we have. Please pray through those things. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to dive into the book of Micah tonight. Lord, we come to you now, and we are very thankful for um, the opportunity to stop down in the middle of the week and to um, consider your word, uh, to consider what you said to us through your prophets. Um, my hope, um, as I have studied and prepared and looked at this particular text is that um, that we would be sobered tonight but not disheartened and that we would want what you want. Lord, that's such a good tell when we read our Bibles and we see what you want and we can just ask, does that line up? Or do we have the same affections, the same desires that you have? And so with, with that prayer, I also just pray for honesty tonight, that we would listen closely and that we would walk away with discernment that we would not have if it didn't come from the Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord, and we trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you've never been to a Wednesday night study before, and as we're starting back up, I know we have new people visiting each week, um, checking out things. Um, We move much more quickly on Wednesdays than we do on Sunday mornings. Our approach on Sunday mornings is expository preaching. Ben describes it as low crawling to where you're looking at it so closely you don't leave hardly anything on the table. Um, On Wednesday nights, we were doing a survey study, an overview study. So the idea is that if someone was to be born into this church and grow up in this church, by the time they go off to college, they've got a big old chunk of the Bible, if not all of it, that they have worked through and can give you an idea of, yes, I've actually looked at the minor prophets. I've actually looked at something other than just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we move slowly on Sundays, but but we move much more quickly on, on Wednesdays. So with that, pay real close attention. I'm not going to like talk real fast, but we leave a lot on the table. And there's a lot where you can go home and, as the scripture says, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding. So I don't have all the goods to give you all the understanding you need to have. But in fact, in thinking over it, the Holy Spirit does something where God gives you understanding as you think over it. So we're going to be in Micah this week and next week. We were in Jonah last week. Generally, I start off with about 10 minutes of review from the week before. And I'm not going to do that anymore because it takes 10 minutes. And so we have a lot to cover tonight uh, with the book of Micah. And, and next week as well. So we're just going to dive right into Micah. So turn to Micah. And we're going to actually, um, it seems weird, but we're going to start in, in the last chapter to begin the study. So look at Micah 7. And as you turn there, I want to share with you that I have found that reading through the minor prophets is a very sobering exercise. The last few weeks in my thoughts and in my home, I have been uh, very... Um, Things have kind of slowed down in regards to my thoughts. I felt very sober as I look at these minor prophets. It it takes us back, as we read them, to these sort of timeless basics, these really timeless basics, where we're considering, as a people, who God is, why he has a people that he has designated as his own, and what happens when those people resist God. That's what we're looking at, particularly in the book of Micah. Who is God? Why does he have a people he's designated as his own? And, and what happens when God's people who are designated as, as his own resist God and turn from God and do their own thing? As I read, I find myself asking questions like, do I view sin the way that God views sin? Do I view redemption the way that God views redemption? And in fact, do I view God the way that God wants to be viewed? These are things that become very clear as you're reading through the minor prophets that, man, his view of sin in this area, maybe I'm not as concerned. Or his view of redemption in that area, maybe I'm not as hopeful. Or his view of himself in all these areas, maybe I'm not looking at him as much as I'm looking at the circumstances. And so it's very sobering to read particularly through minor prophets. So as we dive into the study tonight, I want you to ask yourself this question, and then we're going to discuss it a little bit. Think about it in in your own brains and in your own hearts as I ask, are my purposes, are your purposes in religion God's purposes in religion? Are your purposes in religion God's purposes in religion? Because believe it or not, sometimes very religious people can have nothing to do with God. And that's what happened in the book of Micah. That's what we're going to explore tonight. So to to kind of get the ball rolling, my question for you guys is, what is religion? 
One at a time. We can't, I mean, we've got to sort through this one at a time. What is religion, religious people? Learning about God and worshiping Him. Those are two key components in any religion, learning, learning and worshiping. What else is religion? So the religion, you could say, is a, don't open up that can of worms. Don't go there. Don't go there. Um, religion, you could say, is, is sort of a system that's attached to those beliefs. And it's a system of what you teach, what you learn, what you discuss together. And so it can differ depending, you can have a room full of very religious people who have completely wildly different faiths. Um, so when we say religious, we don't just mean you believe in the one true creator, God, and you believe in the Trinity. We're not saying that. We're saying that religion is just kind of a system. It's a system that puts into play what you believe. So my, my question is, how does religion play out in day-to-day life? Yes. Yep. Great point. It shouldn't be separate. Yeah, it should be something that does affect your day-to-day life. Alex, what were you going to say? True religion shows itself in action. I love the way you stated that. It's really good. What else? What does it look like on a Tuesday? Your religion. Yeah. There's consistency. It should be the same as it was on Monday. It plays out different, you know, in different scenarios, but it shouldn't be an ever-changing thing. There should be consistency. So here's my question. How does religion often become something it was never intended to be? These are deep. We haven't even gotten to the text yet. So I, I get it. We're, we're trying to knock the cobwebs off and get the gears turning. How does religion often become something it was never really intended to be? When you So it's more of a social thing sometimes, a social norm even. Okay. How else does it sometimes become what it was never intended to be? Legalistic? Yeah. I do these things. I don't do these things. Therefore, I'm a good person who's religious. Okay. How else might it become what it's not supposed to be? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, fo- that's a great way to say it. Focusing on the externals and moving away from Christ is never a good thing because the external things become the main thing and Christ is supposed to be the main thing that affects the external things. And so um, focusing on the external things and not Christ, when you move away from the relationship with God, religion can become all kinds of different things. You can be more committed to 
many other things than God. You can be committed to Sunday school more than you're committed to God. You can be committed to corporate worship more than you're committed to God. You can be committed to life group more than you're actually committed to God. You can be committed to being a pastor more than you are actually committed to God. It can be more about raising a morally upright family than it was ever about God. And it can be more about social connections and, you know, well, we want to be a church family than it was ever about God. So religion becomes what it's not supposed to be when you move away from the genuine personal relationship with the Lord that exists only in Christ. So with these questions in mind, we're going to dive into our text. Look at Micah chapter 7. And this, like many of the um, readings of the minor prophets, is, is not the most uplifting of reads, but it gives us a good idea of what's going on, particularly in the state of Judah, the southern kingdom. Okay, so Micah chapter 7 and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. These are, um, it says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. So Micah, the prophet, is speaking, and he's speaking in, in terms of the reality of what's going on there. And he says, I have become as when the fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. I want you to notice the totality of his language. Everyone's bad. No one's good. They all lie in wait for blood. No one's upright, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. So that's a picture of, here's an evil guy who has a lot of money, and he wants to do whatever he wants to do. So he takes that money, and he bribes the prince, and he bribes the judge. And so they weave their little system together where everybody benefit, benefits for them to get just whatever they want. That's the setting here. That's what's the norm in their state. They weave it together in their evil. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. And look what that, this is how that plays out with the confusion that comes from their evil ways. It says, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your, own, in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We wouldn't know anything about that. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. This does not look like an encouraging situation. There is no way to spin that and say, um, it's not bad. It is bad. The prophet wants you to know their situation is bad because of the way that they are living. So here's our background that we need to understand. Like Jonah that we studied last week, the setting is 8th century B.C., but instead of Nineveh, we're in the southern kingdom of Judah, okay? Instead of Nineveh, which was up here, we're in the southern kingdom of Judah, which is down here, as opposed to the northern, which is right here. Are we all good on our geography? Fantastic. So if you read in your ESV, the background section has some really good insight to understand what's going on. And it says that, God's people had fallen, as we read in these verses, to sad moral depths. Morality was, was, was low. They were immoral. They had fallen to these very sad moral depths. And society was dissolving, 
and misery was ensuing. We read about that misery. You can't even trust your neighbor. You can't even trust the one you're lying in bed with. You can't even trust your kids. You can't even trust your in-laws. You can't trust anybody because everybody is out for their own good. And so society has fallen and dissolving and misery is ensuing. And what we realize when we read about this background is all this is happening in the 8th century. Remember last week we talked about in this 8th century BC that that's when Jeroboam was leading and there was peace during the time of Jeroboam. There was success because of what Jeroboam had done. And so they weren't experiencing all of the Assyrian afflictions and all that where these great empires were, were lording over Israel. They were actually having some freedom from that. And so they could actually focus on things like work and economy and putting away some savings, maybe building a house and things like that. And so this was a time of peace. So that's what's interesting about this setting because that is an important detail. They're not acting this way because people are treating them badly. They're acting this way because they have free time. You see that? They're acting this way because things are good. Because they have discretionary time. I, I read a quote, I forget who it's by, but he said, I have, I've often found that sin flows in the direction of discretionary time. It was convicting to me because I love discretionary time. I love it when the, the schedule opens up. The reason was not oppression from empire nations. They weren't disobeying God because things were so hard because of the Assyrian oppression. Here's the reason that they were acting the way they were and being selfish and plotting for their own selfish gain. The development of an upper middle class. That's the reality here in the southern kingdom. The development of an upper middle class because of the peace that existed during the time of Jeroboam. That's what was going on here. We can relate, I think, if we really try hard, so what's happening here? When there's a war-torn nation, there's usually a significant disparity between those who are wealthy and those who are poor. When there is war and there, is, there are battles for power and there's unrest, a lot of times the poor people are very poor and they're having a hard time getting by and the rich are very, very rich and they are lording it over those who are poor and there's a lot of war because people are trying to get what they need to succeed in life. Because of the peace that existed, the rest from all the fighting... Um, there was an upper middle class that developed. So with freedom from Assyrian oppression, this upper middle class developed, and sadly, they didn't use that freedom to serve God. In a short matter of time, they turned from God. That's, the, that's what's going on here. They, they have freedom. They have more resources. They have more time to meet with the judge. They have more time to meet with the prince. They have more time to figure out how to weave together the evil schemes to get what they want and to gain power and esteem and influence and resources. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great connection. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, Dever has a note. Mark Dever is the, the survey that we utilize for these notes that I, that I use every week as I'm putting these together. Dever has a note and he says, um, it's a rich man's world. That's what was going on in this, in this situation. It's a rich man's world is all that he says. So in the text that we just read in, in chapter 7, what's the result of Israel's self-centered movement? What do we see in those, those actual verses? Look at those verses. What is it that we see is the result of Israel's very self-centered movement in this rich man's world? People become corrupt. The breakdown of the family. I was hoping someone would pick up on that. 
Not surprised who it was. Insight, insight, wisdom. The breakdown of the family because people are corrupt. There's people over here wanting power. These people over here want power. And kids are suffering. Families are breaking down. It's hard. Yeah. Not only could you not trust those who are in the home, you couldn't trust your neighbor either. What else is a result? Their hands are on what is evil. Why? So that they do it well. Like, have you ever tried to become skilled in something that was hard at first, but then you got better at it? It took practice, like catching or throwing a baseball. Um, any other skills y'all can think of? Playing instruments, you got to practice it to get good at it. They were practicing evil so that they could get good at it and have a skilled hand to get what they want via evil. Yep. Yep. Very similar. Yeah. What else are the results? What are they doing to one another? Hunting, bribing, shedding one another's blood. There are self-serving judges. They're conspiring together. There's a lack of trust with neighbor, lack of confidence with friends, disintegrated family life. And this is only part of the mess. This is only the part of the mess that's revealed in chapter 7 in these, in these few verses. So we're going to continue to see the mess that they're in throughout this study. But rest assured, it's a mess. If you've ever done any kind of, of uh, working with like social work and things like that, you can see this more closely than some who don't have an eye to it. It is very difficult when you see things breaking down like this because there's power and there's selfishness and there's arrogance. And so here, Deborah has a note. He says, we humans have mastered the art of caring about ourselves more than we care about others as well as about God. We've mastered the art of caring about ourselves more than caring about others or God. And he goes on to say, this only embitters life and belittles our experience of it. You don't get a greater experience of life or a more profound experience of life by serving yourself. It'll never work out that way. It belittles your experience of it. It minimizes how great it could be, and it embitters your life. Notice what happened here. They didn't serve themselves, gain more riches, and therefore be more happy because everything was better. They were self-serving, and their families fell apart. The government fell apart. There was no one who was trustworthy. Everything was about deception. There was no justice. And that was the result of them trying to look out for number one. Church people, Christian people, don't, we don't look out for number one. We, we consider the needs of others. We consider others more significant than ourselves. And that plays out in real life-to-life things. Here, um, the book of Micah is a prime example of what not to do when you are set apart as a people for God. What not to do during times of peace and abundance. Don't just try to store up more and more riches during times of peace and abundance. Don't lose sight of helping other people. This is not some nation of weirdos. Like we're not looking at these people saying, wow, bizarre. What bizarre behavior that they would put themselves first. They're just like us. They're made of the same stuff we're made of. Or to say it another way, we're made of the same stuff they're made of. Same propensities, same fleshliness. 
as you read through Micah and most of the minor prophets, it's not generally an uplifting read. There's a lot of judgment because there's a lot of sin. Let me say that again. There's a lot of judgment because there's a lot of sin. But there are other parts that we have to make sure we don't overlook. So what I want you to do is look at the very next verse with me. Micah 7, 7. But as for me, the prophet speaking, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This is near the end of the book, and he has expounded upon all of the evils that they are living. God speaks through prophets to tell the people the reality of their existence and what they're doing and what's going to happen if they don't turn and repent. So he sees how terrible it is. And somehow, here in verse 7, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah was not hopeless, and neither should we be. We shouldn't be hopeless when we see these kinds of things. We should be hopeful because there is a God, one, who hears, and he is a God of salvation. And and Micah believed that. He was not hopeless. So in the middle of all of this godlessness, in the middle of all of the godlessness, there's still God. We have to remember that. When you see terrible godlessness, when you become... Um, disheartened and frustrated by the things that like Planned Parenthood is doing and all the things online or like we can't even hardly watch the news at our house because we have little kids and within three minutes of the news coming on it's something nightmarish that's happened to a little kid it's absolutely heartbreaking something about a teacher something about someone who's done something that is terribly monstrous but in the middle of all the godlessness we have to remember as God's people that there is still God God is there God has a plan And Micah knew what it was. For the rest of our time this week and next week, we're going to consider three things about what God wants. Three things. The first thing is God wants wrongs to be rebuked. One of the things that God makes clear through his prophet is that God wants wrongs to be rebuked. The second thing is that God wants his people to be restored. You may think of verses like, He's not slow, as some people call him slow, but he's patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish. So God wants his people to be restored. And the third one that we'll probably focus on most of the time next week is God wants his character to be known. God wants his character to be known. So the first one, God wants wrongs to be rebuked. Has anyone ever felt recently that it's becoming a little bit more risky to rebuke wrongs? Does anyone feel that way? Has anyone anyone tried to rebuke a wrong on Facebook? How does that go? Just immediate repentance. I am so sorry. Thank you for pointing that out to me in front of the world. I will turn from my ways and follow the Lord in holiness. Not usually. But it's the same today as it was then. God wants wrongs to be rebuked. Remember at the beginning of Jonah, the evil of Nineveh had come before God. He sees the evil. It's a reality to him more than it's sometimes a reality to us. He sees that evil. So while evil may be commonplace to us, we may see it in the news all the time. Do you realize you can watch the news whenever you want and it's, it's equally depressing every time? 
It's equally sad every single time because the newscasters don't have the hope of Christ. So it's all of how terrible everything is minus the hope of Christ. If you struggle with depression, you watch the news all the time, step one, stop watching the news all the time. Don't be a news junkie because you, you feed your brain that stuff. And scripture tells you to take your thoughts captive, to exercise dominion over your thoughts. That means that God has designed you as, a cre- as your creator so that you can actually exercise dominion over your thoughts. You can control your thoughts. But they're much harder to control if you feed them with negative things all day, every day. So, while evil may be commonplace to us, it has never and it will never be commonplace to God. Do you know why evil will never be commonplace to God? Because God is holy. If you write nothing else in your notes, write down that God is holy. That's why evil is never commonplace to him. We would not have the lightheartedness and even sometimes flippancy that we have towards evil if, in fact, we were more holy like God. So anytime we don't see evil the way God sees it, it's because of a lack of holiness on our part. And the reason that he never winks at evil is because he's perfectly holy. So what are some of the evils that the church people have a tendency to tolerate, approve, or even wink at sometimes? Obviously, we hate the big things. We could all name the big things that, that we, that it's, Sometimes it's kind of easy for us to be super vocal about because it's just so terrible and wicked. But God hates every evil. Sin is lawlessness, according to the scriptures. So my question, what are some evils, lawlessness, sins, that church people have a tendency to tolerate, approve, or even wink at sometimes? Gluttony. Gluttony, okay. Any others? What? Anxiety. I should have said that one. I struggle with that terribly. Gossip. Gossip. Reminds me, I got something to tell you. Do what? Prayer requests? Gossipy prayer requests, yes. yes. They're just prayer requests. I need to know so I can pray properly. Yeah, we've been there. God knows who you are. What are some other things? Fear. Greed. Laziness, unkind words, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a pretty exacting requirement on your words. Paul Tripp wrote a book called War War on Words, War of Words, and it was a play on words from another book, but it's really good. It talks about that thoroughly. What else? Tolerate, approve, or wink at? What? Worry. Yeah, kind of in line with anxiety. I've, I've shared with you before that I thought that was sort of a badge of honor growing up. If I was anxious over something, it let you know that I really cared. Or I'm just a prideful sucker who's not trusting God. That the, the, the latter is more true. What else? Lack of giving. Anything else? We've covered all the, the safer ones, maybe. <laughs> Pride, it's a big one. There's a book that Jerry Bridges wrote called Respectable Sins. It's a really, really good book. 
Now, if you're thinking, what's a respectable sin? The point of the book is that there are no respectable sins. He's, he's calling them out. Um, it's respectable sins, confronting the sins that we tolerate. And um, it's a good read, and it's insightful, and it's helpful, because sometimes church people can become very, 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 very focused on the, the grossness of society and secularism, and we lose sight of what that call to keep a close watch on your life. And so one of the, some of the things that he mentions, I wrote them down in my margin here, um, the, the respectable sins that we don't maybe talk about as much as ungodliness. Like, let's not forget that ungodliness itself, not being godly, is a sin. So, society would laugh at that. Church people may not laugh, but may not give much thought to it. Anxiety, frustration, discontentment. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book in the 1600s called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, indicating that Christian contentment is a rare jewel, and that book itself is a jewel. It is very helpful. Like I was reading my mail. Unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability. Impatience and irritability. Impatience, anger, judgmentalism, Envy, jealousy, words that are not kind or edifying, and worldliness. Those are some of the things that he addresses in his book. Now, I want you to turn over to chapter 1. We're going to go back to the beginning of Micah. We're going to look at 1. And I want you to see the kind of things that were going on here. Because remember, we're still on the the point that God wants wrongs to be rebuked. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, he says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Essentially, God's saying, I'm going to turn this thing upside down. All carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. And from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. Pretty salty language. Look at 2, 1 through 11. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Remember the other one that said they're careful with their hands to figure out how to, how to do evil. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. And then listen to this. Listen to what they do here. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. What just happened there is I'm not 
satisfied with lying, so I'm going to go ahead and put some words in God's mouth too. So whatever you're preaching, it's a lie, and we're going to make it better so it, feel, it doesn't feel so bad. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. You see it, you take it. That's how you're acting. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Think about that. Uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. That's a reality here. If a man should go about in utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So what he, he's saying that the prophet Micah is not good enough. But if you had a prophet who came up and said, hey, how about some wine and strong drink? You would say, yay for that prophet, the prophet of drunkenness. So this is bad stuff. They're not content with their own lying. They move in the direction of putting words in God's mouth. Essentially, they wanted prophets who would tell them nothing more than that their land was going to be full of good things for them. Have you heard Ben, and he's given the example in his preaching a few times, of you don't want a doctor to just tell you nice things. If you have cancer, you want the doctor to say, hey, you have cancer. You don't want him to be flippant. You don't want him to be lighthearted. You want him to, to tell you what the issue is so that you might get to the heart of it and find a solution. Dever says, this is how Judah picked their prophets. He said, can you imagine picking your doctor based on how cheery and optimistic his diagnoses are? They're saying, Micah, shut up. Give us a prophet who tells us that the land's going to be full of good things like beer and wine. As is the case in most things, leadership is held very, very accountable. It's not just people that are bad. Part of the reason that they're not going in the right direction is that their leaders are just as terrible and atrocious as they are. In Judah, the leaders needed to be rebuked in their wrongs by the prophet Micah. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. What, what's said, this is said not just to the members, but of the leaders. And Micah says... And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and fillet their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That is very descriptive language. What are we talking about here? What is the rebukable wrong of the leadership in those particular verses? What have they failed in? They failed in justice. They hate the good and love the evil. And how did that play out? How did, how did that affect their view of human life? No respect. The leaders of the people during this time were guilty of not respecting the sanctity 
sanctity of human life. They were guilty of not respecting the sanctity of human life. And they treated human life in a very flippant manner. If they had to tear skin from people to profit in a dollar, they would. This is the leaders of God's chosen people. According to verse 2, why did this happen? How could this possibly happen? How could you get to a point where you had such disregard for the sanctity of human life that you could tear it apart for profit? How does that happen, according to verse 2? Not knowing justice, loving evil. Call it what it is. In verse 2, it says they hated the good and they loved the evil. This is not just a behavior issue. This is not just a process issue for them right here. This is a heart issue. Why would you have such disregard for the sanctity of human life? It's because you hate good and you love evil. Your heart is given to evil. Your heart is not receptive of and sensitive to that which is good, that which is just in the eyes of God. So it's a heart issue that we're dealing with. And Micah, the prophet, just says it straight out to the leaders of Israel. Y'all have a disregard for human life because of your evil hearts that would prefer evil over good and not submit to good and not be affected by good. And look at what he says in 3, 4 through 7. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. I'll just stop there. He will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. What's the result of their evil? Rebuked and what? Abandonment. Turns them over to their ways. God will treat the corrupt leaders as they have treated their people by not hearing them when they come for help. People will go to the leaders for help and the leaders would disregard the people and treat them poorly for the sake of their own gain and their own profit. And so God says, when you cry to me for help, you are going to get the same thing in return. I will not hear you and I will not be there for you when you need my help. He's giving them the corrupt treatment that they gave to their people by not hearing them when they come for the help because their hearts are hardened. The heart of God's punishment in this entire book is cutting off his communication with his people. So here's my question that I want you to think about. Write it down in your notes. Think about it in your, in your devotions. Would you know if God has cut off communication with you? Would you know if God has cut off communication with you? How would you know? What would be the indicators? God gives them what they want. The next question is, is there anything that you desire more than God? Anything? It's a picture of Romans 8. They saw fit to trade the truth about God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. And so he gave them over to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. Is there anything that you desire more than God? Is there any sin? Is there any sin that you have held on to for years that you need to be more serious about putting to death? Is there any sin that you're continuing to dabble in that you shouldn't dabble in? You should put it to death. Please don't lose sight of the fact that the Bible uses very violent language in regard to your sin. Very violent language. We don't dabble in sin. We don't try to be less frequent in our sin. We don't try to manage our sin. We murder it. That's what the Bible calls you to do. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. 
And you do that out of love and reverence for our God who redeems us. Consider the extent to which God was willing to go in order to deal with your sin, and it will give you an idea of how bad your sin is. Consider the extent he went to pay for the penalty of your sin, which is death. And it will give you an idea as you continue in that sin, as you want to dabble in that sin, as you want to try to continue to manage that same sin over and over again, not trusting the Lord in particular areas, seeking out flesh in particular areas. Consider the sacrifice that he made, the extent that he went to to pay the penalty for that sin. And it will, it will show you that you are not viewing that sin the way God views it. The goal is to view the sin the way that God views the sin. Indeed, God wants wrongs to be rebuked. That's the first point. And here's the second point. It's a little shorter. God wants his people to be restored. Remember the woe to those oppressors in chapter 2 that we read, those who devise the wickedness, they, cover, they covet fields, they seize them, they, they're, they're terrible towards people, they just take what they want, they're just very violent. God wants his people to be restored. Look, look at the end of chapter 2, look at verse 12. At the end of all of these woes, and just calling them out for the evil, and putting words in God's mouth, replacing the true prophets with ones that will lie to them to make them feel better. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So Judah will be judged, but Judah will be rescued. Who particularly? Will all of them just get rescued in spite of their evil? The remnant. The remnant are the ones who are repentant. The remnant are the ones who will hear the warning from the prophet and change the way they're living because they believe God, they're listening to God, and they trust God. So it's the remnant of Israel that will be redeemed here. And, and it's to give you some timeline, he says, I will surely assemble all of you. He's saying, y'all are about to be scattered. I'm about to turn this place upside down. You will go into a place that is not near as comfortable as a place you're in because of the way you treated this comfort, treated this freedom. And so 150 years later, after this, this prophecy of Micah, God's judgment is fulfilled as Judah and Jerusalem begin to move into exile and all of Israel follows 150 years later. And after they've been in exile, 70 years. So now we're at 220 years. The first exiles return to Jerusalem. So, so if you zoom out from where we're at in Micah, you zoom out, you can know that here down the timeline, in 150 years they leave, they're in exile for 70 years, and after 70 years they begin to trickle back in, and you have Ezra, and you have Nehemiah, you have the reformers who, who uncover the word, and begin to go back to the word, and begin to submit to God's design and God's purposes that have always been timeless. It's amazing, they picked up the word, and it was the same as it was 220 years earlier when it was rejected. So we're reminded that God's sovereign purposes aren't thwarted. They remain. They're consistent. God kept his promise. It's 220 years later. They recover the word of God. They rebuild the walls of Jerusalem 220 years later. Look at chapter 7, verses 8 through 9. I want to make sure this is very clear. It says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and, my, and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. What was the cause of Jerusalem's fall? 
What would be the cause when they would finally go into exile, be scattered? What was the cause? Was it the oppression of the Assyrians? Was it a great empire who was just stronger? What was it? It was, it was their sin. Yeah, it's idolatry. The reason for their fall was, was sin. Now, you could look, you know, just secular, outside looking, and you say, well, this, this nation was stronger and oppressed them. God had a hand in that. You have to see that. God had already made clear his purposes through his prophets. They ignored it, and they bore judgment because they did not repent. That's the way that it works. There's all this judgment because there's all this unrepentant sin. It was not another, another nation's strength that caused them to fall, but their own sin and God's justice. Dever notes that God's word to his people was stern and, and ominous. His word and, and these prophets is stern and ominous, but it was not finally hopeless or despairing. When I read that, I felt convicted as a parent. Think about how that might affect your parenting. Some of us men are very good at stern and ominous. If you ever do that again, you ever say that again, you even think that again, you even think about thinking that again, we get real stern and ominous, but are you hopeless in your parenting? I mean, in, in your discipline of your children, are you following the discipline of our Heavenly Father? Whereas he is in Micah, he's stern, he is ominous, it is a reality, but he's not hopeless. There is hope given for the repentant one. Remember, you're not just trying to scare your children out of bad behavior. You're trying to, to, to discipline and disciple their hearts. Behavior is an outpouring of what's inside. And so you can't stop with... God's going to send you to hell if you do that again. you got to go to the hope part about Jesus and redemption and, and repentance and forgiveness. you got to get there as a parent. So it is sobering, and it is good to remember, in conclusion, that with the rise and fall of every nation in our world's history, every nation in our world's history, there was always a remnant of God's people who were restored and preserved. Always has been, always will be, until the full inclusion of Romans 11. We're not going to go there, but it's, it's important. Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Rome, the Ottoman Empire, others have risen and fallen. And it is good for God's people to see that God's sovereign purposes remain. There's not a big fear of Roman uprising today. There's not a big fear of the Egyptians coming against us right now. But there are pockets in each of those places that, yeah, there's, there's dangerous things. There are people who are still moving in evil godlessness. But through all that, the rise and the fall of every one of those empires, Christianity's never been wiped out. It's because it will never be wiped out. It's good for us to remember that, especially if you watch the news. It's good to remember God will always sustain his repentant people. God will cause a work in your hearts that helps you to persevere no matter how hard it gets. So the question is, well, why does that happen? Because God gets what he wants. God wants that. Remember, God wants sin to be rebuked, and God wants his people to be restored. And so if that's what God wants, that's what's going to happen. No empire has ever kept that from happening. So this is the question that, that we're going to close with tonight. Do you want people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be redeemed and restored? Do you want people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be redeemed and restored? 
Are there any particular nations or particular ethnicities or particular races that you look at with disdain and say, I don't care if they're redeemed and restored? If so, repentance is in order. Because we should care deeply about every nation, every tribe, every tongue being redeemed and restored as they hear the truth of the gospel and the restoration and redemption that exists in Christ alone. And if so, that should have an effect on our life and our religion. It should, it should play out in the system that we have for the way that, that, that the truth about God takes hands and feet and shape. Some of that, for some of y'all, might mean going somewhere, going to another country. For some of y'all, it may need, mean you need to actually start praying for those who we have sent. You need to start praying for people groups because we should care about every nation, tribe, and tongue being redeemed, being rebuked, being redeemed, being restored. Dever has a note in this section of his. He says, at any point, God may decide to scatter and disperse this or that congregation and this or that nation. That's sobering, right? I would like to think as a pastor, as long as we do things right, nothing will ever happen to scatter this congregation. That's not a reality. I mean, we want to do things right. We want to obey the Lord. We want to have good order. We want to pay careful attention to every member of the flock. We want our leaders to be men of integrity. But there's no guarantees. God may decide to scatter and disperse this or that congregation for reasons that are beyond our understanding. Ecclesiastes says that we're the kind of people that want to know everything from the beginning to the end, but we can't know everything from the beginning to the end so that we will fear him. So that means that there are things that happen that we can't understand. And when we can't understand them, control freaks like me say, I want to make sense of it. Give me understanding and I'll have peace. Easy as that. And God says, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here so you fear me. So we fear him. So there's things that happen. And in this, he says, he may allow the religious freedoms that we presently enjoy in the West to erode so that we can no longer expound scripture openly. Or he may bless some congregations so they're bursting at the seams with many, many people. But none of these matters, great or small, are determinative. Our hope, our certainty, and our confidence as a church must rest in God. Because God will gather and exalt his people. That's what he showed in Micah. If they were left on their own, that would be a very, very hopeless thing. But because there's a God who hears, because there's a God who cares to send a mouthpiece like Micah, because there's a God who has always had a remnant of people through the rise and fall of every empire in the history of our world, our hope must remain solely, firmly, completely on the Lord. If things go way worse than they've even come, come close to in our world, you have to know with absolute certainty that God is trustworthy and that God will preserve his people and that when Christ returns, he will gather us together and there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb and all those things that we talked about in our inheritance on Sunday will be an, a significant, tangible, in front of us reality for all of eternity. So there's hope. There is hope. As we read, that's something that I feel the need to reiterate in closing as we read through the minor prophets. There is hope. The minor prophets would be the depressing prophets if there was no hope. But because of it, we, we can trust that God um, will always gather and exalt his people because he wants sin to be rebuked. He wants his people to be restored. And as we will consider next week, he wants his character to be known. Next week, we'll talk about how, his, how he wants his character to be known. He wants people to know what he's like. He doesn't want you keeping it a secret. He wants people to know his character. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. The more we search it out, the more we're reminded of that. 
Lord, I'm thankful for the, the prophet's words. There's no possible way that I would ever, ever come up with any of this on my own. There's no possible way as I read through the things that you told the prophet that I would just default to any of that. But I'm so thankful for the reminder tonight that wrongs should be rebuked because that's what you want and that people should be restored because that's what you want. And as, as I pray that you would prepare us for next week as we talk about how we can live in a way that shows people the character of our God because that's clearly what you want. Lord, in the areas where our desires do not line up with yours, I pray that we would repent and change. Help us to be more holy as we draw near. We love you. You are so good, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good evening. Don't forget to go get your kids.